Before I get started, let me just say, and our kids can all, have they already left? Did they already leave? Okay. Uh, before I get started in, in today's message, next Sunday we're going to be starting to celebrate Advent. And I've been looking forward to this because this year we are going to have our children uh, share and light the Advent candles for us and be sharing some uh, word with us before the message. And it's just going to be an exciting Christmas season. I, I'm still struggling trying to believe that it's already holiday season. It seems like it ought to be about the middle of August. And yet here we are, December is upon us, and uh, boy, the year is almost over. But for today, I'm going to be talking about how we've been talking about God's goodness. And today I want to focus on God's purposes because God's purposes are good, even though sometimes we may not recognize that. There are things going on in our world, things going on in our lives that make us question from time to time whether or not God's purposes and plans really are as good as we want to believe they are. I, uh, I think we are living in a, in a world, a culture, a generation, whatever you want to call it, where we as Americans are, are threatened in a way more than any other time in our history just this week. I found three different publications that are freely available on the web that were very concerning to me. They're not anything that you haven't heard elsewhere, but just the fact that all of this kind of information is so readily available is a concern. The first one instructed Muslims about the correctness of killing Christians. Now, this was from Saudi Arabia. It, uh, the article went on to say, it's a good and a right and a pleasing thing to God that Muslims kill Christians. The second encouraged Muslims to fight their own personal jihad with physical violence toward Christians, even if it goes to the point of committing murder. The third publication was designed to expose what they see as an evil cabal or action controlling our government. And all three of these publications, as I said, are freely available for anyone in the world who wants to read them. So we shouldn't be surprised if those of us who are Christians in the western part of the world feel a little bit less secure and somewhat more troubled than what we did, say, 40 or 50 years ago. An investigation project from two years ago in our own country found terrorist networks in Washington, D.C., Hamas cells in Alexandria, Virginia, and ISIS and Al-Qaeda linked groups in 49 out of our 50 states. At the same time, there seems to be threats that are rising up against our religious liberties that threaten our right to publicly express our faith right here in America. That's the world we live in. I wish I could tell you that it wasn't, but it's just so radically different, it seems like, from even the world that I grew up in. I made the remark to somebody in my family here just a few weeks ago, I want my country back. I want it to go back to the way that it used to be. And I'm afraid that uh, that's going to be a I think that's going to be wishful thinking, the way things are shaping up. But I don't want to depress you this morning. I just want to say that many of us in the church are kind of ill-prepared to combat this fairly new phenomenon of intolerance, particularly intolerance toward us as Christians. We see hate crimes in the news. Uh, hate crimes are described as an inevitable result of hatred for different groups, if you, if you give your biblical views on issues such as homosexuality or abortion, and I'm talking about the biblical views, if you voice those views, it's now hate that causes you to voice those views. That's the world that we live in. And I don't know about you, but it's concerning to me. We, we seem to have forgotten one of the founding principles of our, 
of our forefathers, and, and it's this. I can think you wrong, that you're wrong, but it's your right to defend your wrong. You know, it's not okay to disagree with somebody anymore. If you disagree, you become their enemy. I want my country back. I, I don't like living in, in a place where it's not okay to have a different viewpoint than somebody else, especially if it's a, a biblical viewpoint. So, again, what do we do at times when we're under pressure as Christians and we're told that it's illegal to say that any other religion other than that that believes in Jesus as Lord is false or that homosexuality is wrong or that abortion is wrong? Well, you leave aside questions of national security and you leave aside questions of religious liberty. And I want to this morning just simply speak to you as a Christian to fellow Christians. We have to remember that even with all of those things that I just described, we are still living in the best nation in the world. Because other nations around the world face much greater oppression than that which we're facing. It's fair to say that even while we are freely gathered here this morning, many Christians around the world do not have the freedom to come and gather together to worship as we are doing. The glories and the freedom that we know in America, therefore, sometimes get easily taken for granted. I'm glad we're able to assemble together as bodies, uh, as members of the body of Christ this morning, aren't you? And we need, to, we need to not take that for granted and to appreciate it for what it is. So, nowhere in the Bible will we find instructions for how to deal with a generation such as the one we are living in. There's no better place in the Bible to find instructions for how to deal with that than the Old Testament book of Daniel. And I want you to go with me to Daniel chapter number 7. And I'm going to tell you while you're turning there that this is a complicated book, and what I'm getting ready to read with you, read with you, uh, is just an example of what Daniel was going through. Now I'm not going to expound on what we're getting ready to read because I don't have time. Uh, I, I, I'm just going to read this to you because it's a very similar situation to uh, in, in Daniel's day to what we are experiencing today. There's going to be some of this that you won't understand, and again, I don't have time to really explain it all, but you'll get my point when I get to the end of the passage that I want to share with you. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here's the summary of his account. Daniel said, in my vision at night I was watching and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea and four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, let me just stop here and tell you what these beasts are so you'll know who I'm referring to as we read them. The first beast is that of the empire of Babylon. Daniel had been exiled from the his homeland in Israel, in Jerusalem, and carried away along with his fellow Israelites to the land of Babylon. Babylon ruled the world at that time. So Babylon is the, the first beast that Daniel is referring to. The second one will be the group of people that conquered the Babylonians. We call them the Persians. And the third one will be the people that conquered the Persians, and that would be the Greeks, the Alexander the Great. The fourth one will be the people who conquered and took over the world from the Greeks, and that would be the Roman Empire. So as I describe these, keep that in mind. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So where did I leave off? No, okay. The first was like a lion but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly another beast appeared. A second one looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. While I was watching, another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads and was given authority to rule. 
While I was watching in the night visions, a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it and it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. There were eyes in this horn like a man's and it had a mouth that spoke arrogantly. How many of you are glad this is Daniel's dream and not yours? Okay. Now, again, I'm not going to explain or get into what all of that was, but what I want you to understand is what we're getting ready to read next. Daniel says, as I kept watching, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. And as I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their authority to rule was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Can I just paraphrase that and give you the Reader's Digest version? God wins. In spite of everything that's going on in our world, God wins. And those of us who serve him are on the winning team. Now, how does that relate to God's purposes? Well, all of those frightening things that Daniel dreamed, we wouldn't want to be a witness to those ourselves, although it's a description of the history of our world. But the point that I want us to understand this morning is that we live in a world where it seems like evil is winning. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it's all a part of God's plan. All the stuff, all the, all the evil, all of the, the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the terror, we wouldn't want to wish it on our worst enemy but it's a part of the world that, uh, that, that for a time being, Satan has dominion in. But God wins. Read the last chapter of the book. God wins. That's the point of each of these visions. It's, it's very much like the New Testament book of the Revelation. And the last chapter that I just referred to tells us that when it's all said and done... We're on the winning team. Now, all of these worldly powers that seem so powerful, time is going to expose the emptiness and vanity of their pretensions to God's power. God is the one that's all-powerful, not the kingdoms of this world. God is sovereign. And the great message of these books, these chapters of the book of Daniel tell us, among other things, that we have to learn that most, the, the most fundamental thing in answering the questions of how to survive in a world where, that's growing increasingly hostile to, to Christianity is not our attitude toward others. The most important thing is our attitude toward God. The most fundamental answer how to survive in a fallen world is to understand God 
and to understand God's goodness even in the midst of all of this. So I want to give you this morning three things that Daniel himself is commended for in the culture and the world in which he lived in Babylonian exile. And those three things I'll just tell you right off the top and then I'll come back and describe them for you. The first thing that Daniel is commended for is that he was attentive to God. The second thing that he was commended for was his humility. And the third thing that he was commended for was his obedience to God. If you go to Daniel 10 and look at verse number 12, God sends an angel in response to Daniel's vision, and the angel says, Don't be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you propose to under, you purpose to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard, and I have come because of your prayers. Even in the midst of Daniel's trouble, when Daniel cried out to God, God sent the help that Daniel needed. And from everything that we can learn about Daniel and from this great book, we know that Daniel had a profound desire to pay attention to whatever God would say. How many of you think that it's important that we pay attention to what God says? Good, a few of you. Well, you see, God revealed himself to Daniel in these visions, and Daniel had been an eager student desirous of gaining knowledge and wisdom and understanding. One thing that I have purposed in my life, and I would highly recommend for each one of you this morning, is to commit yourself to being a lifelong learner. Let me say that again. Commit yourself to being a lifelong learner. I've probably learned more in the last five years than I've learned in the 57 years prior to that. Just because there's so much that's available for us to learn and to understand in ways that we may not have previously understood. But we have to, in order to do that, we have to be attentive to what God says to us. Let me give you an example. How many of you have read a uh, you, you fill in the blank. Uh, the most familiar scripture that you love from the Word of God. Some of you may say John three sixteen. Some of you may say Psalm 23. But how many of you have ever, I mean, you could, you could quote those passages if you needed to. But at certain times when you're going through stuff, you quote those chapters or, or those verses again. And all of a sudden they mean something completely different to you than you've ever found them to mean before. Anybody? You know why? It's God speaking to you in ways that you've never understood God to speak before. So you have to remain attentive to what God is saying. How are we to know the truth about God if God doesn't reveal it to us? God doesn't reveal it then all of our thoughts and opinions are just speculation. God has to reveal it to us, and the way that he does that, friends, is right here. You know what this means? The B-I-B-L-E, basic instruction before leaving earth. Now, that's not official. That's my viewpoint. The B-I-B-L-E, basic instruction before living, leaving earth. How many of you have ever... Had, had a problem with your car, and it's, you didn't want to take it to a mechanic, so you, you start fooling around in your glove compartment, and you see this thing called an owner's manual, and you've never looked at it before. Hello, go ahead and admit it. Go ahead and admit it. You know why they put that owner's manual in your car? so that you'll follow the instructions. That doesn't mean that nothing will ever never go wrong with your car. It simply means that if you follow the instructions in the owner's manual, there's a better chance that you're not going to have problems with that car. I mean, when it says change oil every three to 5,000 miles, that doesn't mean you wait until it turns over 50. Hello? Just as you follow 
or should follow the owner's manual instructions. This is God's owner's manual. And as people of God, it might be a good idea for us to follow God's instructions in His Word so that we can get through all the stuff that this world is throwing at us in a better way. Rather than letting the world overwhelm us, if we follow the owner's manual, we know that in the midst of the stuff that's going on, God is with us. Jesus said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, even to the end. That doesn't mean he's going to walk you around all the problems of the world. It means he's going to walk with you. He'll be there with you. He will not let them over, those things overcome you and overpower you. You know, if the person sitting next to you this morning is unknown to you, they're going to continue to be unknown to you unless they reveal your, themselves to you by their speech, right? Even your best friend, your spouse, your child will be unknown to you if they don't honestly share with you what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're hoping, what they're deciding. So how much more then is that the case with God? God wants to reveal himself to us, but we have to be attentive to what God wants to say to us. You know, when you're a kid and your mom tells you where some candy is, you listen carefully, right? Or, or when you're lost in the city and, and you're needing to find directions and you roll down your window, you see a guy that's walking around and you ask him uh, where to get, how to get to such and such a place, you listen so that he, you can get to where you want to go. You have to pay attention to what God is saying. That's what it ought to be like when we read the Word of God. When we hear the Bible taught, when we hear it preached, we should pay attention and listen to what's being said. You know, my, my goal as a pastor is to preach in such a way that... that uh, <coughs> excuse me... <coughs> well, I'll try here again, is to preach in such a way that you can understand what God's Word is saying to you and, and that I can break down God's Word in, in such a way that it makes it easy for you to apply to your lives. And the more that I help hook you up with God's Word, the better I've accomplished what I've set out to do. But all I can do is tell you what God has shared with me. I can't force you to pay attention to what I'm saying. But I can tell you this. You better pay attention to what God's saying. If the Spirit of God takes part of His Word or part of the Word that He gives me to share with you and, and, and quickens your heart, that's God speaking through me to you. So we have to pay attention. We also learn from Daniel's example how to survive in a fallen world by being humble toward God. Remember that 12th verse of chapter 10, that angel that came to Daniel told Daniel, humble yourself before your God. What does it mean for you and I to humble ourselves before God? Well, I don't know of any other way to explain it other than this. It means to understand more of who God is and to understand more of who we are in relation to God. Makes sense that someone who is attentive to the Word, who listens to what God says, would be humbled by what God says. You know, when we close our mouths and open our ears, we open our eyes to read and study, that's a way of humbling ourselves. I would encourage each and every one of us here this morning, when you are getting ready to come to church on Sunday morning, just breathe this prayer. Lord, I want whatever you have for me today. I'm going expecting to hear from you today. Now, if you've already decided, well, I'm going to go and I'm not going to listen to the songs because I don't like the songs and I don't like Pastor Terry's preaching, stay home. 
I mean, there's no practical use for you to come. But if you come expecting to hear from God, something in a song or something in my words or, or something from a fellow Christian is going to speak to your heart to the need that you have in your life for that particular day. You need to be attentive. You need to humble yourself. You need to be willing to be corrected, if need be, on your ideas about God. That's humility. Education without humility is nearly impossible. What do I mean by that? That's a nice way of saying, have you ever known somebody who knows everything there is to know? There's no humility there. I, you know, let me give you an example. For many years, I had this irrational view of God, of who God was. I thought God to be this big ogre in the sky ready to club me over the head for every mistake that I made. That's not who God is. So I had to humble myself and realize that's not what God wants me to think of him. And so I had to listen to God reveal to me over a period of time who he really was. Not who I had been brought up to think that he was. And it's evident here in the book of Daniel that, da- that God was a, a wonderfully greater being than Daniel himself. And Daniel saw that. And Daniel saw a lot of things that testified to the fact that God was great. He saw his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Delivered out of a fiery furnace. Daniel saw himself in a den full of lions. Hungry ones, by the way. And the mouths of the lions were shut. And Daniel wasn't harmed. He realized at that point, God was a whole lot greater than he was. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... I wonder whose presence you appropriately are humbled before. Is there, any, is there someone that you respect, so highly esteem, that you would really, literally be humbled to meet them or for them to know you? How else can we who are imperfect beings, wrong, sometimes even evil, Respond to a truly good, all-powerful God, all-good creator, other than with the most profound humility. Daniel was humble. How do we cultivate that kind of humility before God, the kind that Daniel had in his life? Think of something you've done in this last week, specifically, that would cultivate humility in your life. I have a book in my office. It's written by an author named C.J. Mahaney. It's called Humility, True Greatness. And in the back of the book, after you've read the book, he, uh, Mahaney gives this list of suggestions for cultivating humility in our lives. And in case you haven't read it, I want to share with you just some of his suggestions. He says, and I quote, Always reflect on the wonder of the cross of Christ. As each day begins, begin your day by acknowledging your total dependence upon God and your need for Him. Begin your day expressing gratefulness to God. Practice the spiritual disciplines of prayer, studying the Word, and worshiping. Do this consistently each day at the day's outset, if at all possible. Commit time to memorize and meditate on Scripture. And then as each day ends, transfer the glory for whatever good you've done on that day to God. Before going to sleep... Receive the gift of sleep from God and acknowledge His purpose for rest. And for special focus, study the attributes of God. Study the doctrines of God. Study the doctrine of sin. And then let me add, play as much golf as possible. It's a humbling game, isn't it, Steve? He goes on to list, laugh laugh often. And be willing to laugh at yourself. Throughout your days and weeks, identify evidences of God's grace in the lives of other people. Encourage and serve others each and every day. Invite and pursue correction. And respond humbly to trials. Man, what great words. 
Perhaps you can find some of those useful in your own life. But we pray for humility not just in our own lives individually, but also to have a church culture which encourages and reinforces a a true, deeply felt, joyful, and Christ-honoring experience of humility. It's the kind of humility that seemed to typify this man called Daniel. And that's why Daniel could have the kind of power Daniel had in in an evil, perverse culture in which he lived. And did you know that Daniel lived in that culture for decades and succeeded in living for Jesus? And not only that, but he outlived the Babylonian Empire. He outlived it. Even after the Persians had taken it over, Daniel started serving Persian kings. Humility. Oh, God was still his God, but he, he was at the service of those pagan kings, and that's the kind of humility that we're called to. One other aspect of Daniel's stance toward God that we need to notice, and it fits so perfect with these first two qualities of attentiveness and humility, and that is Daniel's obedience to God. Now, to understand the magnitude of Daniel's obedience to God, we have to know some things about Daniel. The first thing you need to know is that Daniel was an Israelite. Daniel had been captured in the year 605 B.C. when the Babylonian forces under King Nebuchadnezzar defeated Jerusalem and took away many of the young, promising people who were citizens of Jerusalem and carried them away to this land of Babylon. And for decades, Daniel served in the court of Babylonian emperors. As I said, he outlasted the Babylonian empire. The entire time, though, Daniel was in a religious minority. Now, understand that. His practices of eating, the things that he ate, praying to the God that he prayed to, and worshiping the God that he worshiped were thought to be the strange practices in the land. He was in a minority. The exile of his people from their land had happened because God was punishing them. A thousand years prior to Daniel living, Daniel told Moses, he said, I'm going to give these people this promised land. But if they start living in disobedience, I'm going to cause them to be overtaken and taken somewhere else. And exactly what God warned Moses about, the Israelite people did. They started living in disobedience before God. They started worshiping pagan gods. And God fulfilled his promise. A foreign enemy came and overtook them and carried them to a place where they didn't want to go. By the way, Daniel acknowledges that in Daniel chapter number 9, which again, I don't have time to read, but it's a prayer of confession for the sins of, that, of the nation of Israel. And if you read through that prayer, let me just suggest to you sometime, when you have time to read that, supplant the Israelites with America. Begin confessing the sins that we've found ourselves being subject to as Americans. And pray that prayer of repentance and you'll find yourself praying something the equivalent of Second Chronicles where it says, If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. Do you believe God can heal America? Of course He can. But in those verses of Daniel 9... Daniel talks about the importance of obedience. He's confessing to God, God, if we as a people of Israel would have just obeyed you, we would have never been taken into this captivity. And there's this refrain and confession of a lack of obedience to God because obedience to God, friends, is of utmost importance. We have to live lives that are obedient to God. And that means to God's Word. We have to live in obedience to this Word. Remember, it's the owner's manual. Daniel keeps this attitude to God of obedience 
regardless of the earthly circumstances that he's walking through. You know, brings a question to my mind. Is there anyone that you intend to obey completely? It should only be God. We need to pay attention to God's Word so that we can obey His Word, so that we can come to know who, Him for who He really is and relate to Him as His children. Jesus said to His disciples, He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, which is another word for obey, teaching them to obey all things whatever I have commanded them teaching obedience. I have to hurry. What is it about God's character that draws us to these attitudes of attentiveness, humility, and obedience? It's His goodness. The goodness of His purposes. Not only is our God all-powerful, He's all good all the time. Even though we go through trials, God is still good. Now, as Christians, we have no vision of some kind of earthly utopia that's going to come to us because we as Christians are going to march and we're going to overtake the world and we're going to make them be like us. That's not even scriptural. So we don't have those those illusions. We understand that in this fallen world, God will allow things to happen to continue that are anti-God, and He allows those things to continue sometimes through earthly power. We are going to have trials. All who are godly in Christ Jesus must suffer. Now, let me just say here, that it saddens me that there are some in the Christian world today who haven't made that very clear. Some in the Christian faith today have often tried to present the good news of Christianity as being a way to get you to think that whatever it is you want, we can give it to you because we serve Jesus. Well, it's not true. It's not true. The truth is, if you can't serve Jesus understanding that part of serving Jesus is going through trials and suffering, I can tell you this, your wants are off, as are most of ours. If you're, you can't serve Jesus because he's not giving you everything you want, your wants are the problem, not Jesus. We think God has a better plan than even you have for your own life, that we have for our lives. And we think we can only come to know His plans through humbling ourselves before Him. In truth, friends, Christianity is much, much better than anything that God would just give us because we want it. It's better than that. What I'm saying is there are times when we're tempted to be angry or even a little disappointed at God because of what He has allowed to occur in our lives. Well, and I think we can all identify with that. There are things that we wish we weren't having to go through. Situations that we wish we weren't having to deal with. God, why can't you just take these situations away from us? Why can't you just make them disappear? After all, I'm serving you. Well, if that's you this morning, my task as a pastor is somewhat similar to a doctor that has to break a bone in order to reset it. And that's not a pleasant task. But you have to adjust your expectations of who God is. And I'm hurrying to a close, I promise. In the early church, clear over in the book of Acts, Jesus said in John chapter 15, He said, remember the word I spoke to you? A slave is not greater than his master. And then he added this. If they persecuted me, speaking of himself, they're going to persecute you. Nobody likes persecution. 
And all this stuff that we're going through, this challenge to our religious liberties, the challenge to speak of our faith openly, we don't like that. But Jesus endured it. He had to go through it. The situation that so many of us in this room have known, the situation of of being slighted or persecuted here in America, as I said earlier, that's actually unusual in the history of the world, even among Christians around the world, because most of them have it a lot worse than we do. All this nostalgia about being a a Christian nation, it only serves to weaken, weaken us, to misguide and misdirect our efforts because persecution has and it will continue to come to Christians even in America. And do you want the bad news? It's going to get worse. That's what the Word says. It's going to get worse as things go on. If you don't believe that, read 2 Timothy chapter number 3. The first couple of verses is a pretty accurate description of the way things are going in the world today. But all of this is another reason, friends, why you need to be a part of a Bible-preaching, Christ-exalting, love-living church because we can help each other get through tough times. I said we can help each other get through tough times. Encouraging one another, building up one another, caring for one another, counseling one another, praying for each other, pleading before God as Daniel did on behalf of the people of God. Our part as Christians is not to run away from pain and suffering, but to walk to God through our pain and to let Christ from his own life, his own experience, teach us how to turn every and each and every bit of suffering into a positive learning experience about the depths of the love God has for us. Oh, I don't like him any more than you do, but they're a part of our walk. They're a necessary part. And this church family, it's a, it's a treasury of suffering. From arthritis to loneliness, it's, it's a treasury of suffering. From confusion to bereavement, God in His kindness allows us to be living testimonies to the fact that having Him is better than having perfect marriages Painless joints, constant immediate wisdom, and never-ending earthly friendship. Having God is better than all of those things. We're attentive, we're humble, we're obedient to God. Because not only is His power complete, but His purposes are good. I wonder what hopes those of you who are here today have brought with you this morning. How are those hopes faring? Some of you have probably experienced even the end of your hope in some areas. But friends, I can tell you this morning that as Christians, our hope will only end when God ends, and that's not going to happen. God is going to win this thing. He's in control. Our hopes, even our greatest hopes, our highest, our deepest hopes, we're assured of. Now, can't quit without asking this question. Are we going to get all the things that we want? Not necessarily. Sure, certainly not in this life. But you see, that's the difference between a Christian and somebody who just thinks they're a Christian. Someone who just thinks they're a Christian really only cares about small things. These may not sound like small things, but no pain, no suffering, no pressures. In light of who God is, those are small things. And a lot of, a lot of would-be Christians, they, 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 they quit following Jesus because following Him doesn't bring them deliverance from their pain, from their suffering, from the pressures of life. They, they want to follow a Jesus that calls them to live this flowery bed of ease. Friends, that's just not the reality of walking with Jesus. A Christian follows the way of Christ. And you know what Christ said about that? He said in Mark chapter 8, verse number 34, that if we are to follow Him, we must deny ourselves, 
take up our cross, and follow. Take up our cross? You know what the cross meant? Incredible, unspeakable suffering. There are no comfort zones on a cross. And what I'm trying to get across to you this morning, and I don't feel like I've done a very good job of doing, is this. That even in the carrying of your cross to follow Jesus, whatever pain, whatever pressure, whatever sorrow that brings, it's still going to be worth it because God wins. And as the people of God, we are on the winning team. Paul said, I consider the things of this life to be inconsequential when compared to the glory that awaits me. Friends, just hold on. Jacob, worship team, would you come please? Jacob, you guys were playing that chorus earlier for offering blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is our story. It's not always a pretty one. It's not always a fairy tale. But it's our story, and our story involves pain, and our story involves suffering, just as Jesus' story involved it. But you need to read the last chapter, because the last chapter says that we win. And that's good enough for me. Is it good enough for you this morning? I want you to stand to your feet, and I... Sure, little Leonard, you probably don't have that song up there. Maybe you do. Hey, boy, you're good. Thank you. Let's change that. Can we do that? Just sing that this morning. And I want you to sing this as a prayer to God. I, I, I want it to be. I want it to be a confession. And, and the way it works is something like this. God, you know everything that I'm going through, and you know that I don't like what I'm going through. But in spite of what I'm going through, I have this blessed assurance that we're going to win, that you're in control, and that it's all going to be worth it. Let's sing it together. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, washed in his blood. Now make it your story. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Now hear me on this. I confess to you this wasn't the most positive, uplifting message you've ever heard. But it's the most honest. It's the most honest. Because Jesus wants us to understand that when the world comes to overwhelm us like a flood, not to fear... He is in control. And I know that there are some in this room right now 
that have had issues and circumstances in your life over the past months, even the past year, that could have easily overwhelmed you. Hello? Come on now. Nothing to be ashamed of. That could have easily overwhelmed you. In fact, at times it probably felt like you were getting overwhelmed. We win. We have the assurance from the owner's manual that we win. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. I want to just say one more thing to you, and I believe this is the Holy Spirit speaking to me. Praising my Savior all the day long. You know, it's easy to praise God when things are going well. But the Bible talks about a sacrifice of praise. That simply means that you praise Him even when you don't feel like praising Him. Even when your circumstances would tell you that you have nothing to praise Him for. You lift up a sacrifice of praise. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. And we offer unto you the sacrifices of thanksgiving. Thanking Him for our circumstances, whatever they may be. You know how we can do that? With the knowledge that we win. He's in control. Heavenly Father, be with us as we leave this morning. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room this morning that is experiencing trial, suffering, pain, tribulation, persecution, can't find any more adjectives, that you would remind them of the truth of your word. That they be attentive to what you have spoken to us from your word this morning. That they humble themselves under the almighty hand of God. And become obedient to your word. And understand that part of that obedience is trusting you. Even in the midst of their circumstances. In Jesus name. Amen.